Are we seeking to be a blessing? There's a reason why church attendance is important. This is our Back to Church Sunday. Why do we come to church? Why do we assemble like this? Why are we here today? Well, we're here to grow so that we can in turn turn around and help somebody else grow. Mentor somebody else, disciple somebody else, encourage somebody else, bring somebody else along. That's an unselfish thing, folks. And that puts the focus on other people. It takes it off ourselves. And now we're living, we're on planet Earth at this time, to take some folks under our wings and to try and help them along. And when we're not doing this, we're missing a very important part of the Christian life. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Let's take our Bible squeeze at this time and turn to the epistle to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, and the third chapter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. As I say the word discipleship, what do you think of? Discipleship. It includes mentoring or guiding or helping along somebody, maybe encouraging them, maybe strengthening them. We're going to be talking today about who's under your wing. (laughs) Who's under your wing? And I think you'll understand what we mean by that as we read our text here in 1 Thessalonians 3. Let's read in verse 1 down through verse 4. Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone, and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith, that no man should be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation even as it came to pass, and you know. Now, Paul the Apostle here is writing to a church, a local church much like this one, in the town of of modern-day Turkey, Thessalonica. And he's writing to these believers as young believers in the Lord, as believers who had been attacked and persecuted, and he's trying to encourage them. He's trying to establish them. These are folks that Paul has taken under his wing. He has discipled them and has mentored them. He's trying to help them. At the last part of verse number 2, he mentions that he wants to establish them and comfort them concerning their faith, basically taking them under his wing. And so the question for all of us today is this. Who currently do you have under your wing? And I think you know what I mean by that expression. Who are you helping along, spiritually speaking? Who are you mentoring? Who are you encouraging? Who are you trying to be a blessing to? Who's under your wing? Let's pray before we begin. Father, we ask you, dear Lord, to help us to look at this very important truth, this precept from thy word, something that can be such a blessing to other people and could help us so much spiritually as well. Help us at this time to have some folks under our wings that we are trying to mentor along, trying to encourage. And if not, help us to find somebody that we can be a blessing to. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a difference between a pipe and a sponge. A pipe is something that transfers water or something else from this point to that point. It's always taking in. It's always giving out. It's a conduit from this 
this place to this place. A sponge, on the other hand, is always trying to absorb and take in and hold as much as it can without giving any of that out. Are we a pipe or are we a sponge? Are we seeking to be a blessing? There's a reason that we come to church, and we talked about it in the hour before this one. There's a reason why church attendance is important. This is our Back to Church Sunday. Why do we come to church? Why do we assemble like this? Why are we here today? Well, we're here to grow so that we can in turn turn around and help somebody else grow. Mentor somebody else. Disciple somebody else. Encourage somebody else. Bring somebody else along. That's an unselfish thing, folks. And that puts the focus on other people. It takes it off ourselves. And now we're living, we're on planet Earth at this time, to take some folks under our wings and to try and help them along. Paul, in this particular chapter, is uh, writing to some folks, and he has been left behind in Athens. He's concerned about what's taking place back in Thessalonica. He had gotten the Macedonian call. He had gone to Philippi. He'd gotten roughed up there. He had left town. He'd come to Thessalonica. He had won some people to Christ there, and things got hot. So they got him out of town to Berea. Well, the Thessalonian Jews followed him over there and stirred up stuff again. So they got him out of Berea. And they sent him to Athens, and there in Athens, he's pacing the floor. He's wondering what's going on back yonder in Thessalonica. You see, his heart is still there. He loved those people. And now he's waiting on Timothy to bring news back from Thessalonica on how these folks are doing. And he gets good news. He gets great news. And so with a full heart, with gratitude toward God, he he takes Quill in hand, and he begins to write this, this wonderful epistle. And he talks about how how glad he is that they're doing well spiritually because Paul had a vested interest in these people. Paul was into discipleship. Now, when I say discipleship, I'm talking about coaching somebody. I'm talking about guiding somebody along and, and instructing somebody along and explaining to somebody. It's something that we should be doing. We're tutoring folks at all times. We are edifying somebody, and we have somebody under our wing. So who is currently under your wing? Who is it that you're, you're currently trying to help? Because when you try and help something, somebody, it does something for them, but it also does something for you. It does something for me. And when we're not doing this, we're missing a very important part of the Christian life. So as we talk about mentoring and, and guiding and helping along and encouraging and strengthening, as we're talking about who we have Under our wing, we're going to be looking at several things from this passage that it involves. First of all, it involves showing concern. It involves showing care. Notice in verse number one, Paul says, Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we couldn't take it anymore, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone. Notice the word wherefore. Wherever you see the word wherefore, you need to see what it's there for. It's always referring to something else he's already said. And what he had already said was in the previous chapter, and he'd been talking about his earnest love for these folks at Thessalonica. And he said, based upon that, he said, we couldn't take it anymore. We could no longer forbear. And he said, I just had to know how you were doing. You know, Paul couldn't help it. Paul cared about these people. Paul wanted to make sure they were doing okay. Now, Paul didn't have to do that, and it's really odd that at this, this point of his life, he even messed with it because he had been through the mill. He didn't have to be doing this for a living, if you want to put it that way. He had been thrown in jails. He had been shipwrecked. He had been beaten with rods. He had been whipped. He had gone through the mill, and he continues to do it. Paul didn't have to do this. 
Paul was educated. Paul was a scholar. Paul had the equivalent of a double PhD. Paul was no dummy. He could have named his job. In fact, he could have retired at this point, if you put it in that perspective. But he kept on going. He was, he was a hero of a number of battles, and yet he's still going. He could have settled down in some church someplace. He could have quit the traveling. Uh, he could have had a cushy job like teaching in a Bible college or you know something like that. But Paul didn't do that, did he? Paul said, no, I care about you. And we find in verse number 1, he said, Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone. Paul mentions Athens here. Paul couldn't go back to Thessalonica. You know why? Because he was the hot potato. <laughs> he was the one they, even the disciples said, you've got to get out of town. All this persecution is because of you. Paul, we love you, but you've got to go. And so he couldn't go back to Thessalonica. We read in Acts 17, 15, it says, And they that conducted Paul brought him into Athens, and receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus, for, for to come to him with all speed, they departed. So they drop off Paul at Athens, and he said, uh, Go get Timothy and go get Silas, and I just got to know how the folks back there at Thessalonica are doing. Paul couldn't take it any longer. We read here in verse number one again, he says, Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear... We couldn't stand it anymore. That's what it means in the Greek. We could no longer forbear. Uh, he said, I just couldn't take it. I couldn't conceal it anymore. I couldn't hold it inside. I, I, I got weary and, and I, I just couldn't take it. I had to know how you were doing. And so he says we could no longer forbear. By the way, that's the only place in the whole New Testament that that expression is used like that. Now he says in verse number one, we thought it good to be left, notice these words, at Athens alone. At Athens alone. Paul is alone at Athens. He couldn't take it anymore. He's there at Athens alone. We read in Acts chapter 17 and verse 14, Then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go as it were to the sea, but Silas and Timotheus abode there still. They're staying behind in Macedonia, and Paul now is in the southern tip of that region there. He's down at the southern tip of Greece, and he's at Athens alone. Alone in Athens. You ever been left alone somewhere? You ever been left behind? I was talking to a guy this last week, and he said, I'm going to be out of town for a few days. He said, I've got to take my daughter to college. And I thought of, of, of the many young people who have been dropped off at college and what that feels like. <laughs> they're, they're away from home. They're, they're in a strange city, and they're all by themselves. Well, Paul here is in Athens alone. Athens was the very metropolitan of, of idolatry. I went there a few years ago, and, and I went there sightseeing, but Paul wasn't there to see any sights. And what Paul saw was disgusting to him. It was absolutely loathsome to him. There were idols and there were gods everywhere. You see, uh, Greece is known for its intellectualism. And there at Athens, the Athenians were intellectual giants, but they were spiritual pygmies. They were worshiping all these false gods. And Paul walks down the, the, the streets here, and he's getting these, these cool stares from the people as this little Jew, this strange, peculiar man, comes to town. And there he is in the throngs and the masses, and he's rubbing shoulders with all these, these heathen people who didn't really care if he lived or died. And there he is, and he is lonely. No doubt lonely all by himself. Beauty abounded everywhere. Greece is beautiful. The, the turquoise Mediterranean is right there. And, and, and it's a beautiful place, but it's a spiritual desert. Now, Paul didn't get any persecution there at Athens. If you read over in Acts there, uh, people really didn't, didn't give him a hard time as far as beating him up and, and whipping him and throwing him in prison. But the apathy he got there, 
It was almost worse. People just didn't care. They mocked him, and, and it was a lonely place, and it was a strain to preach there, no doubt. I went up on the local campuses this last week. I did something I hadn't done in years. Well, we've had others take care of the campus ministry for years. They've done a tremendous job of it. But the Lord really prompted my heart a few months ago to get back involved in it. And so here I'm up on, on, on campuses, and boy, I, I realized I'm not behind this pulpit anymore. You know, it's a different arena. It really is. And you're standing there and you're, you're, you're preaching or teaching to young people about souls and, and eternity. And I'm standing behind this pulpit thinking that sin has never been mentioned behind this podium before. Eternity has probably never been mentioned. And, and the shed blood and things like that. And you can see it in the eyes of the young people as you're talking about there. You're in a different area altogether. And Paul is in a totally place, a place totally foreign to the things of God. He, he went up on Mars Hill and, and, and got poo-pooed there. Uh, he walked amongst all these heathen pagan strongholds. From Mars Hill, he could see uh, the temple to Neptune, the, the god of the wine, and, and the Areopagus, the god of Mars itself. He could see the Acropolis from there. He could see the Parthenon from there, which is still there. Uh, over 2,000 years later. And the Lyceum dedicated to Apollo, and, and he could see the temple of the Epicureans, uh, a religion that started about 300 years earlier that was all about pleasure and sensualness. And, and he could see the temples to Mercury and Minerva and, and Jupiter and all these things because, again, the Grecians were intellectuals. They were giants intellectually. They were, they were pygmies spiritually. And the, the morals were the pits there. I mean, public nakedness was commonplace there. And the carnal, sensual, immoral activities that, that took place there and the ceremonies were, were unthinkable. And so we find in verse number 1, it mentions he's at Athens alone. He's at Athens alone. There was a, a monk who lived in a monastery and, and was known for his fasting. And many times he would, he would fast up to seven days and even two weeks but he decided to heighten the, the, the fasting and the hardness of it by going out into the desert and the wilderness to fast for days. He was back a day later and they said, what happened? He said, well, it's different out there. I'm all by myself. The temptation is greater and there's no support. Here's Paul. He's in Athens. And he's, he's really by himself. There's no other Christians there. And the temptation's heightened when he's alone. It's always that way, folks, by the way. The temptation will heighten when we're by ourselves. It's no coincidence that the devil found Eve alone when he went for her. It's no coincidence that Elijah got distressed and depressed when he was all by himself. It's no coincidence that Jacob struggled when he was by himself and David struggled when he was by himself and he fell into temptation here. Paul is by himself in Athens. And nobody's responding there in Athens, or at least very few as far as the gospel goes. He gets sick of the place real quick. I don't see any other place he leaves as, as quickly as this. He goes to Corinth from here. He spends a year and a half there. But, but Athens is a different duck altogether. We find here in, in verse number 1, Paul says, Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone. We? He's by himself. You ever thought of that? He sent Timothy and Silas in a different direction, and there he is actually alone in Athens, but he uses the word we. I wonder if he meant the Lord is still with him. He still had the Lord with him. You know, Bible says in Proverbs eighteen twenty four, there is a friend 
that sticketh closer than a brother. And Paul never got away from the presence of the Lord. And he said, we are here at Athens alone. There he was in Athens worrying about folks back in Thessalonica because taking somebody under your wing involves showing concern. But secondly, it involves sweetly comforting. Sweetly comforting. Now, again in verse 1, he says, Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone and sent Timotheus, or Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. He mentions Timotheus here. He mentions Timothy. And if you're a student of the Bible, that's a name familiar to you. You know there are two epistles uh, written to Timothy who would go on and, and he'd become a pastor eventually. But we first see a mention back in Acts chapter 16, verse 1. Then came Paul to Derbe and Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewess and believed, but his father was a Greek. So he has this kind of a, a mixed, uh, I guess, parenting in his household there. His mother is a, a Jew who believes she's saved. His father a Greek. And we find out Timotheus here lived in that area of Derby and Lystra where Paul was actually stoned to death. And Timothy saw that and it impacted him to where he was so faithful from that point on. And it's believed by many that Paul actually led Timothy to Christ. He often called him his son in the faith. 2 Timothy 1-2, he says to Timothy, my dearly beloved son, and not physically speaking, but spiritually speaking, he had led him to Christ, and the new birth in Tim's, Timothy's life had taken place as a result of Paul leading him to Christ. Timothy was special to, to Paul. In fact, Timothy was just plain special. We read in Philippians 2-20, Paul said, for I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. Paul said, I've never met anyone like him. He was, he was special. And Paul took him under his wing. And he mentored him along. And he, he tutored him along. And in verse number 2, he refers to him as a minister of God. He said, Timotheus is our brother and a minister of God. Someone divinely called of God. Someone gifted of God for that ministry while he was in it. And then he also says, our fellow labor in the gospel of Christ. He said, Timothy is a fellow laborer. He labors with me in the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 3, 9, Paul adds, for we are laborers together with God. You ever think of ourselves as that way, folks? As we come together as a New Testament church, we are laborers together with God. We read in 2 Corinthians 6, 1, as workers together with Him. We are laborers together with God. We labor for the Lord. We labor out of a heart of love. We, we labor out of a heart of gratitude. We use our divine gifts given to, to us by God, and we labor for Him. And when, when my love isn't what it ought to be, neither is my labor. I don't know if you've noticed that. When my heart isn't where it should be, when, when my love isn't what it ought to be, neither is my labor for the Lord. It always works that way. And ironically, it's funny that, that our labor cultivates our love. And then our love cultivates our labor. We need to close the circle, folks. We need to get that love so that we have that labor. And you cannot give of yourself without feeling something. I've noticed that. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Timothy was a laborer, not a loiterer. <laughs> he was a laborer spiritually in the vineyard. And by the way, Paul was too. Timothy had learned this from Paul. Paul had Timothy under his wing, his wing for so long. Paul said, I labor more abundantly than all of them. 
Paul was a worker, spiritually a, a worker, and now Timothy is a worker. And so he is a minister of God. He is a faithful laborer. And notice in verse number two what he's doing. He says he's to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. He is to establish you and comfort you. We see this sweet comforting here and this establishing. Now, if we are to take somebody under our wing and mentor them along and establish them, doesn't it stand to reason we have to be established first? We have to be grounded firmly in the truths of God, and we have to be established. That's why we have church attendance, folks. This is a back-to-church Sunday. This is, this is why we come to the house of God. It's not about us. It's, it's about others. We're trying to encourage others. We're trying to learn so that we can help others. And as Paul said here, establish others. Who are you and who am I currently establishing? That's important. We read in 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse number 3, But the Lord is faithful who shall establish you and keep you from evil. God's faithful in His part to establish us. Now we need to be faithful in our part to establish others, to make sure they're in stable condition, to come and put our arms of love around them and the hands of Christ in theirs and the rock of ages and our hearts knits together. Try and mentor them along. Try and encourage them. We find here that Paul mentions establishing them And he says, in comforting them concerning the faith. Comforting them. Giving them that sweet comfort concerning the faith. You know, Jesus Christ was always comforting people. Saying, be of good cheer. Saying, fear not. The world's a rough place. (laughs) And by the way, everybody's hurting. It's been well said, be nice to everybody because everybody is hurting. And so the world is a rough place. We find here as we read again verse 1. It says, wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, Paul says, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. Got it? We see the showing of concern. We see the sweet comfort. But notice verse number three. It says that no man should be moved by these afflictions, For yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. Taking somebody under our wing not only involves showing concern and sweetly comforting, but it also thoroughly involves stabilizing converts. Stabilizing converts. What's a convert? A convert? A convert is a young Christian. A convert is somebody who has just recently been saved. Somebody who has been recently born again. You know, there's a false teaching, and it's even in religious circles, that if you're born in this world and you get baptized, that that water will wash your sin away. It'll make you a child of God, and you're a Christian. Well, that's not true according to the Bible at all. You have to become a Christian at some point in your life. You've had your physical birth back yonder, but you need a spiritual birth along the way. You need a time in your life when you hear the gospel, you realize you're a sinner, a serious sinner, you understand why Christ shed blood on Calvary's cross to pay for your sins, and you, you in, in repentance, turn from sin, and in faith, turn to Christ, and ask Him to save you, and receive what He did on the cross as the payment for your sins. And then, you become a convert. You become a born-again Christian. That's the only kind, according to the Bible. So when we talk about stabilizing converts, we're talking about helping to establish somebody fresh out of the blocks as a new Christian. And in verse number 
3, Paul says that no man that is back in Thessalonica should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we are appointed there unto. You know that word moved there in verse number 3? That's also the only time you find that word used like that in the New Testament. And it's talking about wavering. He's saying so that no man would waver or, or, or wander away or be moved in their mind because that's the tendency when things get hot. When the devil turns up the heat, we begin to wonder, am I doing the right thing? Am I in the right thing here? And we, we begin to question things. And so Paul talked about not being moved by these afflictions. They were going through some afflictions. And by the way, afflictions are part of the Christian life. It's not all gravy. If you're sitting here today and you've been saved any length of time, you understand afflictions. But notice in verse number 3, it goes on, it says, For yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. Not only are there afflictions, but they're divinely appointed. <laughs> Isn't that hard to believe? They are from the Lord. It's no strange thing. God gives us or allows affliction in our lives. He determines the nature of that affliction. He determines the severity of that affliction. He determines the duration, how long this affliction is going to go on. God has a hand in it. It is not accidental. We find that when Paul the Apostle is talking about afflictions to another group of people in Acts 14.22, the Bible tells us he went about confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. Between here and the kingdom of God, we must enter into tribulation. It is on that same road. It is waiting for us. It must come. In Matthew chapter 18, 7, Christ says it must needs be that offenses come. It has got to happen. It is part of God's plan. Jesus Christ went through much affliction, more than any man who ever lived, only to have it eclipsed by going to the cross and, and suffering and bleeding and dying and having nails driven through his flesh. And he understood affliction. And Jesus himself made this statement. In John fifteen eighteen. he said, If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. These were young converts. Paul was dealing with some young Christians. And they were yet to go through it, but Paul said, You're going to go through it. He warned him even before he left town of what was coming. And Paul would know. Paul was a grizzled veteran. He'd been around the block. He had the, uh, the whiskers of maturity. He had the gray beard of, of suffering in his very looks. He, he had gone through it. And now he's calling these new Christians, he's calling these young converts into suffering. You say, I didn't know I was getting into that when I got saved. I think we need to tell folks it's coming when they get saved. I, I led some of the Lord here a few weeks ago. I was having Bible study here with them this last week. And, and I, I said, now, we've talked about this already. I gave him some literature as well. But I said, you have three new enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. You were going in their direction before. Now you've turned around. You've gone the opposite direction. And you can expect some resistance from the devil, from the world, and even your own flesh. It's part of the package. Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.12, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You don't have to, by the way, if you read the verse carefully. All that will or will too live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You can say, well, I'll be an undercover Christian. I'll, I'll just stay in the, uh, the bleachers and, and not get involved. 
Well, fine, but if you're living right, if you're living the way the Lord wants you to live, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. God has decreed us to distress. Part of the package. Before heaven, there's heaviness. Before heaven, there's hardships. Thessalonica was in Macedonia. It was, it was the region or the county, if you will, of Thessalonica. And in 2 Corinthians 8.1, Paul spoke of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. And then he added how that in great trial of affliction. He refers to it as he's writing to another church. And he says that, that church up there in Macedonia, those churches up there, Thessalonica and Philippi and Berea and those kind of churches, he said they have a great trial of affliction. You know, when prosperity comes our way, we tend to praise. And that's fine. But... When adversity comes our way, it cultivates patience, and it cultivates prayer. It has a different effect on us. It's funny how, how affliction will soften the heart of saints. It should. When we go through it, it ought to soften our hearts. While affliction hardens the hearts of the unsaved, just ask Pharaoh. It has that effect on them. If we're saved, James tells us in James 1-2, My brethren, count it all joy... When you fall into divers temptations. Huh? What? Count it all joy when you fall into different temptations or trials. Peter put it this way. First Peter 4.12, he said, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. You say, what's going on? I'm a Christian. I'm going through the, the fire here. Peter says, think it not strange as though what's going on? What happened here? I found a quote this last week. I don't know who said it, but listen to it very carefully. It's gold. A real Christian kisses the rod that scourges him. He blesses God for taking from him as well as giving to him. And this turns his blows into blessings. This turns the grievous cross on his back into a glorious crown on his head. Can I read that again? A real Christian kisses the rod that scourges him. He blesses God for taking from him as well as giving to him. And this turns his blows into blessings. This turns the grievous cross on his back into a glorious crown on his head. Amen and amen. Bible says in Romans 8, 17 that if, if we're children and heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Well, taking somebody under our wing, involves instructing them and warning them and caring for them. It involves some things. It involves, we've talked about it already, showing concern, sweetly comforting, stabilizing converts, and finally stressing caution. Stressing caution. That reminds me of verse 4. Paul says, for verily, that means emphatically, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation as you, even as it came to pass, and ye know. You know, 20 years earlier or so, Paul had gotten saved in, in Damascus. And at that time, God said something about him in Acts 9, 16. He said, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And for 20 years, Paul has been suffering and suffering. And now he tells these folks, you're going to go through it too. He mentions, as we told you. You know, the, the duty of every seasoned Christian is to warn younger Christians of what they may go through, lest they get offended when it comes along. 
By the way, when, when, when we're dealing with somebody about their soul, we don't talk about, oh, you know, God's great plan for your life and, and all the blessings, all the, the prosperity and all that stuff. There's some of that, but folks, it means picking up your cross and following Him. And that's what makes it worth something. The reason these folks at Thessalonica stood firm, I think, is because Paul forewarned them. He said there are hardships coming. You know, in the New Testament times, it was a given. From, from Roman emperors like Nero to Diocletian, the, the Christians in the first century and the centuries that followed were baptized in blood and baptized in fire. And there were emperors that took Christians and crucified them and, and lined Roman roads for a whole mile with crosses, if you can picture that. There were Roman emperors who dined in their gardens at night with Christians dipped in pitch or tar and lit a flame to light their gardens. I'm telling you, they went through it at that time. There was a price for being a believer. We read a moment ago in 2 Corinthians 8.1, Paul mentioned this grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. How that in a great trial of affliction, it mentions they had abundance of joy. Here's the flip side of the coin. When we suffer for the Lord, there's joy that comes along the, the way. And, and honestly, if we're not doing much suffering, we're not having much joy. It, it really is comparative. If, if you don't have joy as a Christian, you might wonder what's missing it might be that you're not giving the devil enough trouble to persecute you or go after you. And as a result, you don't know the excitement of being attacked and the joy that comes along with it of living for the Lord regardless. But if you are living for the Lord and you are suffering affliction and you do have hardship and you're going through some things, hang in there. Hang in there. There's nothing you're going to go through that heaven won't fix. And, and heaven will wipe away every tear because the heavier the trial, the heavier the reward the better the reward. In Acts 20 and verse 24, Paul said this at the end of his ministry. He said, But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear to myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus. Paul went through the mill, but he finished his course with what? Joy. And there's no tear in life that heaven won't dry. In 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul said, For our light affliction which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So what do we do when trials come? We look up. We look up. There was a, a famous preacher years ago in England who was walking along a country road with a farmer, a believer, and that farmer was complaining about all the stuff he was going through and, and how it just dragged him down. They came up to the stone fence about this high, and they both stopped because the cow was was perched there looking over the top of the stone fence. And the preacher wisely said to his friend, why is it that that cow stretches to look up over the fence when he doesn't just look through it? And the farmer looked at him funny. He said, well, he can't. He's got to look up to see. The preacher said, that's what you need to do. <laughs> you need to look over that fence. You need to look up. You have a great God. We don't focus on our troubles, actually, we focus really on the needs of others. If, we're, if we have folks under our wing, if we're mentoring others, we're focused on their needs. And by the way, this could be what's missing in the lives of a lot of Christian people and, and why they don't have that joy. They have no one under their wing. Paul had folks continually under his wing. If it wasn't Timothy, it was the folks at, at Thessalonica. Uh, Peter had a mark under his wing. Christ always had folks along and Always was mentoring somebody. Is there anyone you are currently mentoring? 
Or is there anyone you're currently pointing to Christ? You say, well, I, I gave him a track or I gave him the seven steps to God and that's good. I'm glad you did that. But I think it's ten times more effective when we give our time, when we give ourselves, when we give our love along with it. It's just way more powerful when people know we care and we show we care. So Paul cared. Paul was involved. Paul made an investment. And, and he took folks under his wing. What about us now? What about us? You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Pulpit Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.